Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome, dress listeners. As with so many of our episodes, today we are being transported back in time to September 20th, 1838 to be exact, when a young British woman by the name of Anne Sykes was given a diary on her wedding day. And this is actually no ordinary diary because it's a dress diary and one that is composed almost entirely of fabric swatches. 2,134 fabric swatches to be exact, Cass. (laughs) And these were collected by Anne from her clothing and that of over 100 different people over the course of her long life. She actually died in 1890. So fast forward more than 120 years later, and this extraordinary diary fell into the hands of today's guest, dress historian Kate Strasden, who is joining us today for the third time. And if I am not wrong, Cass, this might make her a contender for most most frequent dress guest. Um, Some of our listeners may remember that we welcomed Kate to our very first season to discuss the sartorial life and legacy of Queen Alexandra. And then she joined us again in 2019 as part of our live recording of Dress at the Bard Graduate Center in New York City, where we are part of a panel discussing their French Fashion Women and First World War exhibition. Yes, and Kate and I actually, I remember this very clearly um, because I was so excited to finally meet her in person. And we went to breakfast the day after our recording. And it was then that she first told me of this incredible dress diary that had come into her possession and that she had plans to write this book um, that we are actually here to talk about today. I'm so excited. Her book, The Dress Diary of Mrs. Ann Sykes, Secrets from a Victorian Woman's Wardrobe, is being released this Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. And the book has been six years in the making. It is such an incredible and remarkable feat of research. She actually charts Anne's life journey from the textile mills of Lancashire, England to Singapore and back again, all the while contextualizing Anne's incredible life within the wider world within which she lived. And that includes tracking the various fashion evolutions and innovations of the period. While others may have seen this dress diary as a book of textile scraps, Our guest today, Kate, saw a window into another time and place and has constructed an incredibly rich and at times unexpected narrative, while all the while making a compelling case for the storytelling capabilities and the value intrinsic to clothing and textiles. So we are so pleased to welcome Kate back again today. Kate, thank you for joining us. Kate, welcome back to Dressed. It's been a while, but it's so nice to have you here with us again. I know it has been a while, but I've been I've been so excited to talk to you. I'm I'm really happy to be back. So thanks for having me. I just want to say congratulations because I know so much work went into this. Oh, thank you. No, it's, it's been it has been. I know it sounds like it sounds really trite to even say it, but it has been a labor of love. I think partly because it was written in the pandemic as well. So it, in that respect, it feels like um, it feels like a trip to have got 
through the other side. <laughs> so I'd love if you can first just maybe briefly introduce us to Mrs. Ann Sykes and her extraordinary dress diary. Maybe just starting with how you came into possession of this incredible and incredibly rare historic treasure. Yeah, well, back in 2016, I was, uh, I, I'm a lace maker and I attended, I used to go to pre-pandemic, this group that was about making handmade bobbin lace. Uh, Honiton Lace, because I live in Devon in the UK, which is where Honiton Lace comes from. And once a month we would meet and I was the youngest by a long way. There were, it was lots of older women uh, making lace and it was an amazing group. I, I loved all the, that was all about women telling stories of their lives and just just being there and making and drinking coffee. And, and every so often I would give a, a short kind of talk to the group because they knew what my job was. And after one of these talks, one of the older ladies uh, came up to me and said, oh, you know, I have a ton of stuff in my apartment that I need to clear up and I'm trying to get rid of it and my family don't want it. So would you be interested? And I spent this very happy afternoon in Plymouth in her apartment and she had a whole, um, she just had trunks of stuff. She had about four boxes of dress patterns from the 1940s through to the 1980s. She had garments. She had practically the entire contents of an Edwardian haberdashery. And it was really fun. And then right at the very bottom, she just brought out of this trunk. It was like the very last thing after an afternoon of, of looking at all this stuff. She brought this object out and she explained to me, she said, well, I, I don't know if I told you, but she had been the wardrobe mistress of the National Theatre in London in the 1960s, which was like, I mean, so fascinating of itself. And um, basically this, this young guy who had been working as an apprentice with her at the time had been to Camden Market one Sunday afternoon and went uh, found this, this thing on a, just like a junk store paid a few pence for it and gave it to her because he thought she would like it. And, um, and when I unwrapped the kind of the, it was wrapped <laughs> in brown paper and I unwrapped it and there was this, I knew immediately that it was, it was like a treasure and it was the most exciting thing. Yeah. And talk about a once in a lifetime opportunity, right? I mean, how many times do you come across something like this? As you write about in the book, it's incredibly rare. It really is. So I knew immediately it's, it was this pink, bright fuchsia pink covered volume that had once started out as a much thinner book, you could see. And then um, as its contents were added over time, it became really, um, you know, this this kind of bulging volume of stuff. And as soon as I turned the first page, it was just a real spine tingling moment because it's just each page is covered in fabrics. So they're pale blue pages and then pasted onto each page are a varying number of different fabric swatches, sometimes just maybe two, sometimes 10. But she had no, she didn't know anything about it. It just came completely anonymously from this market store and she had no, um, had never managed to do anything with it herself. And then um, it had just sat in the trunk for um, the best part of 60 years. And I knew it, well, yeah, I knew it was rare right from the get-go because, I mean, I guess maybe lots of people are familiar with the Barbara Johnson album that's at the V&A, uh, which is a similar kind of 
construction in that it's fabric swatches with inky captions um, attached to each one, but there really aren't uh, many of them that survive. Yeah, and you call it a dress diary, also could be referred to as maybe like a textile scrapbook. And you talked about how this woman who so graciously gifted you this album, um, which is just incredible, um, didn't really know much about it. And you didn't either when you started researching it. And you talk about this process in the book, which I really appreciate. Because, I mean, did you have any idea the incredible breadth of information you would uncover when you first started on this journey? Or that it would even be a journey? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. Because actually in the first, my first kind of, the, the writing is certainly in the first half of the book is very small. And and the captions really took some deciphering. Um, I had to use a magnifying glass on some of them. They're so tiny. And there were no, they're all written in the third person. Or certainly in my early, the, the, the first kind of forays into the book, every caption is written in the third person. So, and, and so it would just say things like, Fanny Taylor, morning dress, 1839, or Bridget Ann, wedding dress. But very, there wasn't a great deal of detail. So there would be a name, there would be a date, but they're always in the third person. And so my feeling in the early stages of of kind of delving into this was that it would be an amazing record of textile types and of wardrobes, but that there wouldn't be a kind of biographical element to it because because there didn't there was no that certainly initially there was no means of identifying who it might have belonged to i thought maybe it was a dressmaker and that she had kept um all of the records because there are over 100 names in the book wow uh, mostly women and sometimes just first names sometimes surnames as well but yeah, I didn't think there was going to be a way of identifying who the keeper of this of this amazing book had actually been. And how does one begin to research what is essentially a 422-page scrapbook? And as I mentioned, 2,000-plus textile fragments. I mean, where did you even begin? Well, I decided, foolishly as it turned out, that I would like to kind of honour the structure of this volume by hand transcribing the oh, wow. uh, so I bought this kind of I was being very romantic about it I bought a, a kind of like handmade paper volume that was leather bound and I sat down and I thought right I'm just going to go and I'm going to transcribe each page and on every page I wrote how many fabric swatches there were I mean it was a really I mean it was a way of kind of nerding out to my yes absolutely so I sat down and I wrote what how many samples there were on each page, what those samples consisted of. So how many were silk, how many were wool, cotton, what the patterns were, and then what the captions were. So I had this kind of record that really, without trying to do any other research at that stage, it just was, it was literally just kind of translating it in a way. I did all that by hand, but then thought, no, I need to do this. I need to have a digital record as well. So as I was writing it by hand, I was also <laughs> writing it up on <laughs> on um, on my laptop as well. So, you know, it was like a, a crazy yet somehow fitting um, approach to take, I thought. And that was the starting place. And it's amazing how certain things start to emerge. The first thing that emerged was a place name came out. So one of the swatches said Emily Taylor Sash 
1842 Preston Guild. So immediately there, there was a kind of geographical clue. It was the first one. And I did a quick, I hadn't heard of the Preston Guild, but I did a quick search and discovered that it was um, a guild event that still takes place in the town of Preston in the UK, which is in Lancashire, the county of Lancashire. So I kind of had this vague idea that that there was a, a North of England, a, a Lancashire connection here. And then I made the kind of that pivotal discovery about the keeper. And there was just one swatch. So you said there's, there's over 2,000 swatches in the book, all written in the third person until I came to one swatch. And this swatch said, Anne Sykes, May 1840. And there were lots of and lots of times that this name, Anne Sykes, had appeared in the book, but always in the third person. And then it just said underneath the first dress I wore in Singapore. And that was like, I can remember actually, I was sat on my sofa and I can remember reading that caption thinking, oh my God, I've just found her. There she is. It's it's Anne Sykes. It's her book. And that was the only time. She never ever referred to herself in the first person again. So just against this kind of floral printed cotton swatch she kind of revealed herself just briefly once and um that was then what unlocked the whole book I was gonna say and then what unfolds is this incredible amount of research you did to bring Anne into view and the amount of information you uncovered is just extraordinary not just about her but her family her friends you know her world travels and adventures I mean and then you all you do this all while situating it within these broader narratives and broader histories of fashion history, but also like life in Singapore, as we'll talk about in a little bit. I mean, it's just incredibly uh, well done. Such a beautiful, beautiful book. I can't say enough wonderful things about it. And Anne's decision to record her life in fabric makes a lot more sense when you learn more about her relationship to textiles and the textile industry, which were a defining element of her life in more ways than one. And you really start the book kind of digging into who Anne was and her family's relationship to the textile industry. Can you tell us more about that? So it's not unproblematic in that sense. So I discovered, once I discovered who Anne was, it was really only a step away to discovering uh, one of the swatches then had recorded Anne and Adam Sykes getting married in September 1838. And again, once you have that kind of detail, particularly if you have an ancestry account, you know, that's um, that's really helpful. So I put that detail in and then that just kind of opened up the their immediate family tree. So I was able to identify that Anne and Adam had got married on September 20th, 1838 in Tilsley in Lancashire, which was a mill town. And Anne's father was a man called James Burton. And he was a very successful cotton spinner in the town of Tilsley and surrounding area. He had started out working with silk and with printed cottons and then moved to spinning cotton in the um, in the 1830s. And by the time that Anne and Adam got married, he had four mills. He was very successful, a wealthy guy. And so cotton and textiles really were at the heart of Anne's youth and her childhood and the, the prosperity that they enjoyed. But of course, that has a, a dark side in that the vast majority of the cotton was being spun by James Burton, was coming from the southern states, 
of um, of America. And at this point in the late 1830s and 1840s, it would still have been cotton picked by the hands of the enslaved. And so I was very conscious that Anne's prosperity and her family's prosperity came from the fruits of that of that enforced labor. So it was it was really I just was very mindful of how much of the cotton in the pages came from that source. Yeah, and I really appreciate that you again, you use these these textile fragments as a way to tell us about Anne's life but also this broader histories. And you tell us about the cotton storm, which Anne's father benefited from and built this cotton empire from in the 19th century. But you give us, you know, you give us the the wider narrative about how, you know, things I didn't necessarily know about, like how cotton accounted for 61% of America's exports and 90% of that was exported to Lancashire specifically. And Manchester, which was the, I'm sure many listeners in the U.S., be aware of the city of Manchester, which is, you know, one of the UK's biggest cities. But at the time, it was known as Cottonopolis, because it was this hub of the, uh, you had the cotton brokers who worked there, it was coming into Liverpool, and then it was all being sold. And, and the bales would come in untreated bales to Manchester. And then all of the mills would be treating, spinning, carding, treating the the cotton uh, to turn it over to the to the finishing processes so yes it was a it was vast and i kind of to me it felt similar to the the way that we might view fast fashion now which is that i think for people living in the uk at the time it was a method of production that was happening far from their eyes it was easy to dissociate themselves from it although the oh, slavery had obviously been um, abolished in the uk uh, earlier, but they were still benefiting from using the cotton from the US. And it feels, this is what I always find so fascinating about textile history as a lens to look at other things, which is that there is a, a kind of, when we think about uh, working conditions and um, dreadful labor situations and wage situations in places like Bangladesh now with fast fashion that you see how these kind of stories bear relating. Absolutely. And actually, dress listeners, we did delve into kind of how cotton traveled, especially its relationship with the UK in the 19th century in an episode, History is Rarely Black or White, Fashion Storytelling with Jason Cyrus and Anne-Marie Gachlin, if you do want to learn more about that. Um, because specifically, he talks a lot about how they look at like the cotton and they actually tracked where the cotton was produced and traced it to America. Because I think there is this myth that because Britain abolished slavery, that they weren't somehow connected. But in truth, they were actually benefiting and capitalizing on it in many, many ways. Something I also love from this section, and you've given me inspiration for more than one dressed episode, was this tidbit about the Quaker-owned Clark Shoes Company, which is one of those rare companies that traded in free labor cotton, which is something I had never heard about. But they purchased from farms in America that rejected enslaved labor. There was a growing conversation happening in, in, a political, in the political sphere about the influx of cotton coming from enslaved hands from America. But the problem was that in order to be able to produce something that was deemed properly uh, free labor, 
cotton, you would have had to have cleaned all the machines, you would have had to, and there was just such a minuscule amount of free labor cotton available. So it would have been, from the manufacturer's point of view, they simply couldn't, they, it was a juggernaut, they couldn't obtain enough free labor cotton. But there were these small scale producers and, and distributors in the UK, as you say, Eleanor Clark was one who was part of the Clark family of Clark Shoes in Somerset. And there were other smaller scale distributors who were doing their very best to raise awareness about the origins of cotton and selling this cotton that came from free labor sources. So it's a, a kind of under underrepresented, under researched history. But there's there's some there are some good publications out there about um, about it. But yeah, it's not it's not well known. Yeah, and, and like I said, incredibly fascinating, something I'll have to dig into maybe on a future episode. So cotton's not the only industry nor, you know, rise of technological innovations that you detail throughout the book. You also discuss the history of copper roller printing, the introduction of synthetic dyes, the sewing machine, the industrial revolution, the rise of department stores. I mean, these are all innovations that Anne witnessed throughout her lifetime. She was born in 1819 and lived till 1890. So it's incredible. Exactly. He really runs the spectrum of that 19th century and all of those changes that that took place. And I think that's what I loved throughout was, was just where in an age where we see fast pace of change and, and technology, but Anne definitely witnessed a huge amount of, uh, of different industrialization and, and all kinds of things. Yeah, it's incredible. And textiles is not something that was just foundational to her own family. It was also um, central to what her husband, Adam, does. And you talked about their wedding day in 1838. And if I'm not mistaken, swatches from their wedding garments are the first swatches in the album. They are. And it kind of it kind of seems obvious. You might think that looking at the first page, you'd go, oh, well, <laughs> surely this is the but but actually it didn't it didn't that they, because, again, it was written in the it, it was written actually by Adam. So he, that's the only time you see a different handwriting in the, in the book. And so it had a different voice and it didn't, until you realized Anne was the keeper, that first page didn't make any sense. So it kind of had to happen in the way that it did. But I do wonder if perhaps Adam had bought this book for Anne and he compiled the first page. And then the idea was that she could fill it with their life as it unfolded. That's kind of my theory. I don't have any proof, but I like to think that that may be what happened. Yeah. And you you tell us what he wrote. So he's he wrote, this is the dress my charming Anne was married in, which is next to a rectangle of white checked muslin. And then alongside that is a sample of his own wedding outfit, which is a remnant of cream satin with a woven floral tendril trailing across its surface, above which he wrote, and this is the vest I had on at the time, Adam Sykes. And then the narrow trim of bobbin lace is described as, this is the lace that trimmed the dress that my charming Anne was married in. So right off the bat, I mean... I can understand why you wanted to take this romantic approach to this because this is romantic. It is romantic. And yeah, she's idolizing her own life in a way too. Yeah. And so wonderful. And and I do like your idea that he gifted her this album on their wedding day as a way to really memorialize their life together. And what's so incredible about the book too is that it's not just Anne's 
fabric swatches from Anne's life. It's also people she encountered, friends, families, and as we'll talk about in a little bit, even kind of interesting contemporary figures from the time that she encountered throughout her life. So I want to talk about Singapore because you repeatedly take the reader to unexpected places throughout the book. And quite literally, this is exemplified by Singapore, which is 7,000 miles away from London and the place that Anne and Adam moved to together pretty early on in their marriage. I mean, did you ever think that this diary would take you to Singapore? What was it like kind of making that discovery and what did you learn? That was amazing. When I discovered that Anne was the keeper and she had identified the swatches saying the first dress I wore in Singapore. But I think maybe at that point I thought she had just visited. I didn't know enough at that point about how, first of all, how long it would take to get for her to have got there. Uh, I guess, of course, I knew that there wasn't an easy way to get there and it would have to be by boat. But it didn't really, I didn't really fully appreciate. I thought, oh, she just, you know, she visited Singapore once. Wow. Uh, But no, what, what it transpired was that Adam, who was a a very ambitious merchant, had been given the role of heading up operations for his uh, company that he worked for, trading operations in Singapore. And so uh, in July 1840, Anne and Adam embarked on this new chapter in their life. And I found them on on a shipping manifest leaving Liverpool on July 1st on board the ship called The Friends. And it was a sailing ship, so it took them four months to get to Singapore. And she took her book with her. I kind of like to think that she, when she was packing all of the other things that she would need for this completely unknown new life, that she wrapped the the album up with a view to kind of filling it with the people that she would meet. And I do see the book as a, the diary as a, it's almost like an autograph album or some kind of keepsake, She's, she is, as well as it recording her own life, it very much is about the people that she encountered along the way and a, and a way of remembering the different characters that she met. And so she took it to Singapore and they lived there for seven years. So from 1840 through to 1847, that was their, their life. And it was a very challenging one. Uh, to be in Singapore at that point was not easy. Uh, when I was reading what life in Singapore was like at that time, there are some amazing first-hand accounts. And, but it was full of tiger attacks and there was no infrastructure in terms of things like medical uh, support. It was a fairly new, there was, uh, it was only a very small European uh, merchant community there. And she had gone from this kind of comfortable daughter of a of a cotton spinner to living 7,000 miles away and on the edge of jungle and it must have been it must have just been unimaginable. And can you tell us a little bit about more about Singapore because it was a British colony correct only I think beginning in the 1820s? Yes so Raffles which is the famous hotel in Singapore actually refers to Sir Stamford Raffles who was the the British a British man who had, up until that point, the the kind of European connections with Singapore had been via the East India Company, but also the Dutch uh, Dutch trading companies, and they had had a monopoly on trade that was passing through Singapore. So 
Sir Stamford Ruffles had been instrumental in working with various governments in order to kind of open up trade and make it more of a kind of free trade uh, settlement. And being in this kind of straits area, as it is, it was ideally placed for trade that was coming out of China and uh, Malaysia and all of those kinds of places. And then it was like the stopping off point for then those kinds of uh, goods to travel onwards to either the US or back to Europe. So it was a it was an important trading route, but but still fairly small at that point. And because you know little of the intimate details of Anne's life, although as I mentioned, what you have been able to find about out about her is absolutely incredible. Um, but you also as part of your methodology, you reconstructed her world based on a number of different sources. So you used the archives left behind, for instance, by her more known contemporaries and friends. And this included a woman by the name of Marie Belestier, whose sartorial life is captured in not one, but 16 different dress swatches in Anne's album. Who is Marie and what does her life reveal to us about the Singapore society within which she and Anne both lived? She's really fascinating because she has What's useful with this kind of research is as soon as you have an unusual name, that really helps. I mean, I think one of the reasons I didn't find Anne as quickly as I might have done is that Anne Sykes is an incredibly common name, particularly in the north of England at that point. So there were any number of, until you have some kind of anchor point to work from. But if you have an unusual name, that makes it much easier to to trace back through the records. And Maria Belestia seemed like an easy name to start with. So I, I, I googled her and up popped this name of, first of all, Joseph Belestia. And Joseph Belestia was the first American consul in Singapore. He had traveled out there in the, uh, in the 18, early 1830s with his wife, Maria, and with their son, Revere. Uh, what's really interesting about Maria, a couple of things. Firstly, that she was the, son, uh, the daughter of Paul Revere of the famous poem about how Paul Revere alerted the... The British are coming. British are coming, exactly. (laughs) He was that first American patriot. And so she was his daughter. The the other really fascinating thing is that all of her letters have been digitised by the Massachusetts Historical Society. She was from Boston. And so when I discovered who she was, I was able to read all of her letters that she wrote to her sister and to various other people, all online. So I had this kind of direct voice to Maria and her experiences in Singapore. And what what I found really moving with these letters was that she was actually quite unhappy in Singapore. She found the climate really difficult. Her health suffered as a result of the of the extreme heat and the humidity. Um, tragically, her son Revere died whilst they were there. And she has these exchanges with her sister um, that are sometimes quite kind of irritable. They get c- kind of cranky with each other. But then you have to remember that there is like four months between these communications. So when her sister writes to her and says, Oh, I don't under, you know, why don't you just come home? It's horrible. Why don't you just come back? You know, it's, we miss you. And, and you're you're clearly unwell. You should just come home. And then there'd be this four month delay between her <laughs> no. writing the letter and it arriving via ship. And then 
um, Maria would write this really kind of cranky reply back saying, well, you, that's easy for you to say, you know, I'm, we haven't got the money to just jump on a ship and come back. And, but at the same time, there's, there's much fondness of, she's just desperate to hear from home and she gets these letters and sometimes sends bits of fabric back. So she quite often talks about textiles and the things that she sends back and forth as gifts to her sister and vice versa. So she was this, I guess, one, the more kind of the grand dame of the, of the Singapore uh, society. She had been there for a number of years before Anne arrived and was, I guess, more experienced in the ways of, the, of that particular settlement. We haven't really talked about what a dress diary is and and what the nature of women's relationship and men's to relationship to clothing was that allowed for Anne to use fabric as a memory keeping tool. Because today, obviously, ready to wear clothing, we don't have extra scraps of our clothing <laughs> lying around that we can, you know, we can certainly cut off a piece of our clothing, but it's very different than what it would have been in the 19th century. Can you talk about a little bit about that? Yeah, exactly. I, I kind of, when I was describing this to, to friends in the early days of my research, I, they, were, they were like, what, did she just go around with scissors and kind of <laughs> nip at people's clothes? Um, but of course, for the majority of the time that Anne was keeping this volume, it was a point where, where people were still buying cloth from their local draper or, or haberdasher or even department store, and then would have the garment made up into the style of their choice via their dressmaker. And so there would be scraps of fabric left over, which facilitated this way of keeping them, this memorializing of their wardrobes and their lives because there were scraps left over. Uh, I mean, later on in the 1860s, 70s, kind of post-sewing machine era, there would have been more ready-to-wear available. But nonetheless, dressmakers were still an important part of particularly of women's lives. And so there would be this, these there would be remnants of cloth that meant you could create these these kind of scrap scrapbooks and scrap diaries. And it's worth noting that actually there's more of them in the US than there are in the UK. So I've only found the only other one I know about in the UK is is the Barbara Johnson album at the VA. But I have found so far maybe seven or eight in in the US. I don't know that it means that they weren't doing it here. I just think maybe it means they weren't kept, whether they were thrown away or, um, but yeah, there are a few more in, in the States. Wonderful. And so, of course, we're talking about dressmaking and dressmaking remnants, but that actually is not the case with one of my favorite fabric swatches and the most unexpected fabric swatch, I would argue, in the album that. None of them are perhaps as surprising or as fascinating as this otherwise unassuming swatch of red wool, which you say, quote, has a dimple of moth damage crimping the upper edge. <laughs> Can you tell us more about this particular fabric that's actually from a flag and it's labeled, quote, taken in Bernio by the Admiral 1845. So this was, like I said, one of the more unexpected and surprising um, fabric remnants. Can you tell us about it? You don't expect to find a pirate flag in a <laughs> And I love that it's on the same page as um, beneath this swatch of pirate flag is a swatch that says, and Adam's birthday slippers, um, <laughs> July 1845. So there's a real juxtaposition of kind of domestic and then international piracy. So 
again, thanks to online sources, because um, I did have to research this through the pandemic. So I'd had grand plans to uh, have lots of research trips and visit places and and then uh, lockdown happened and so all of pretty much all of the book had to be researched and written from home during the pandemic so thank goodness for for digital sources I was gonna say that's incredible that you were able to find out all of this information from digital sources yeah yeah and I think it's you know probably 20 years ago it would have been impossible to to do but I did some research and discovered that there was a a man called Admiral Sir Thomas, Admiral Sir Thomas Cochrane. So this was Admiral Sir Thomas Cochrane, who was on anti-piracy duties in the area at this time. Uh, I looked, I found records at the Greenwich, uh, the Royal Maritime Museum, that was discussing his dispatches that he was sending back. And he was on board HMS Agincourt. And essentially, there was a huge problem with with pirates at, at the, this time because of the really valuable commodities that were being moved between China and Singapore. The pirates would kind of dash out of various inlets around the islands, around Borneo and various places, and destroy. They would sink the ships, but but after they had stolen all of the commodities. Uh, what's quite chilling about the fact that this is a piece of red flag is that a red pirate flag, when it was raised aloft, was uh, the meaning of a red flag was no quarter given, so no mercy. So if you see these, they were called prahas, which was the name of the of the particular kind of boat that the uh, row, very fast rowing boat that the pirates used, and the kind of terror of seeing this ship approaching with a red flag that meant there would be no mercy. So the passengers would all be uh, thrown overboard and the goods stolen. So for the British Navy, there was a a very strong incentive to try and curb the activities of the pirates. And hence, Admiral Cochrane was there uh, to to deal with these kind of these kind of practices. And at some point, Anne encountered him. There are reports in the newspapers of of Admiral Cochrane attending the races in Singapore and attending balls. So presumably at some point their paths crossed and Anne must have asked for a contribution to her book and he gave her this little piece of flag. (laughs) Which is amazing. And you write about in this section how it was fascinating because it shows that she spoke about her diary to those around her and really, you say, likely understood its value as a scrapbook. And it's just incredible that that was kind of maybe a conversation starter or maybe she waited to get to know someone a little bit first or maybe she already had it in mind that she was going to ask for this scrap. But I feel like because it's so different from everything else in her book, I mean, it's kind of fun to imagine what she must have thought uh, receiving it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a it's certainly a conversation opener, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I do wonder if sometimes people were... It is mostly women. So Admiral Cochrane is one of the few. There are some of the merchants, there are some of Adam's clothes and some of the other merchants in Singapore who feature in there briefly. And I wonder how, uh, how it, it would be interesting to know whether people came to kind of slightly dread and asking for <laughs> scraps all the time or whether they just really embraced her, her endeavours. 
Yeah, I mean, it's also self-preservation, right? So maybe you're thinking she's preserving you. I mean, Marie, there was 16 different swatches. So maybe Marie just, you know, gave her pieces as they became available. Um, It's really interesting to imagine. Of course, we will never really know. But I mean, from these fabric swatches, you have constructed entire lives. I guess you've constructed uh, windows into lives. You've constructed bustling worlds for us. And of course, bustling garments. And it is to those very bustling garments that we will turn our attention to in part two of this episode on Thursday, when Kate returns to talk to us about the role that fashion plays in Anne's life. And if you think of it, Cass, Anne witnessed this remarkable evolution in not just the fashionable silhouette of clothing, but also innovation and how both clothing was made and sold. You know, her life spanned from 1818 to 1890. So she saw the eras of, you know, these body skimming Ampere waist gowns to the age of crinolines and bustles. And she also witnessed the invention of the sewing machine, paper patterns, and the ultimate rise of the department store. That's that's a lot. Yes. And it's incredible because Kate discusses all of this in her book, which is amazing. Um, and dress listeners in the UK, you can get your hands on her book starting this Thursday, February 23rd, um, 2023, which is its release date. US listeners, you will just have to wait until June 6th to get your hands on your copy. Either way, you will not be disappointed. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. Until next time, may you consider the significant role that clothing has played in defining your life next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. If you would like to find the Instagram content specifically related to this episode, you can check out the code hashtag dressed 297. That's dressed And the number's 297. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. As we always appreciate our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dressed coming your way Thursday. The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.